site on September 11th. And today, John's going to tell us just a little bit about his day and the documentary that he made. So, John, thanks for coming on. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for having me. So, John, uh, we've been starting this by kind of just asking our guests to tell us how their day went. I know from watching your documentary, I think you might have been home in Brooklyn when this started, and then um, you were, you know, walking over the bridge. Do you want to kind of just take us how your day started? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. I also just want to say for your listeners, the, your, you know, the other three people you have had on um, uh, had far more uh, vital roles to play uh, in 9-11 than I did. I, I'm one of eight million people who um, had a um, indelible experience that day um, that... Uh, it's funny, my wife said, can you believe it's 20 years? And um, I find as I get older, I understand the concept of time far less, how something can seem both so uh, clear and in the moment, and yet 20 years has gone by. Um, so I had worked quite late. Uh, I, I was working in advertising at the time. Um, and I'd worked on a big pitch uh, the night before. And uh, the weather in New York City the previous few days from 9-11 had been very sort of um, humid and it, it, it felt very pregnant with rain, right? And thunderstorms, which is exactly what happened that night. I remember leaving the office very late and uh, uh, took the subway because the skies just opened up and there were no cabs to be had. and. Um, I had worked the weekend, so I was, I was pretty tired, and I, I slept much later than normal, um, you know, 8.30. Uh, jumped in the shower and got out of the shower after a shave or something, and it was, it was past 8.46. And uh, my phone rang, and uh, it was a dear friend of mine from Boston saying, um, are you okay? And I said, I'm, I'm fine, why? And uh, I'm not one of those folks who puts a TV or a radio on in the, in the morning. Uh, and uh, she said, turn the TV on. And, uh, and that's when I saw it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, um, it's hard to describe. Um, your um, guests have done a beautiful and visceral job of doing it. Um, and, and we all have our crystal clear memories of that moment, those hours that went by as we watched, sort of unbelieving. And uh, I uh, was living in the at the time in um, the neighborhood of Brooklyn Heights, which is uh, just over the Brooklyn Bridge from Lower Manhattan. So as the crow flies a mile and a half, two miles from, from ground zero, um, there's a little, it's a very small neighborhood, very walkable. There's a little promenade and you, you can see the towers and uh, a lot of, a lot of guys who worked on Wall Street uh, and in the towers uh, lived in Brooklyn Heights, um, would walk to work, very easy walk. And I, I kind of couldn't believe what I was seeing. And uh, I hung up with her and I thought, um, I don't know why I thought this, uh, being a uniquely unqualified uh, ninth responder. 
but my my dad was a firefighter in Boston. Both of my grandfathers and and my my brother Tom. I have no training in anything, which is why I ended up in advertising. Um, uh, but I thought, you know, they're going to need help, and and so I I uh, I remember, and, and I feel almost embarrassed saying this. I I remember I thinking um, in my muddied state, I, I should put on my work boots, and so I put on work boots, and I sort of it's a it's a short walk to the Brooklyn Bridge, and so I trotted along, and I'm. I'm going over and it comes down and uh, uh, people are, people are streaming over. Um, uh, I have that wrong. It came down. And then I thought about the boots thing. I apologize for that. That's okay. No, no, no. No. I was actually no. going to ask you on, on your first thought when that plane hit. It came down mm -hmm. and, and that's when it was just sort of like, uh, how is this happening? Put on the boots, ran over. And I remember no one was going into the city. Um, traffic had sort of come to a standstill and the cars had seemed to have disappeared. And it was just uh, emergency vehicles and sirens and helicopters. And, uh, but um, throngs of people were coming over the Brooklyn Bridge towards Brooklyn, um, covered in, in, in dust and ash. Uh, and it was weirdly quiet, in, except for the sirens. What I mean by that is human voices. People weren't really talking. I think there was such shock. And um, I remember I sort of run walking and a woman said, yelled from the other side, covered with dust, sort of angrily uh, said to me, where are you going? And, and I remember I didn't say anything because I was like, I, I don't know. I, I'm just going there. And so I got to within about a block. And, uh, you know, police were beginning to cordon the thing off. And uh, I mean, obviously, there was nothing for me to do. I'm, I'm uh and I stood there for a, for a long time, and I remember thinking it uh, clearly. And I said this to my wife, who was also in New York City. Um, I, I bet there are a hundred thousand people dead, like because you couldn't believe it, it you know. So I grew up in Boston. Um, I know your listeners are all over the country, but my landmarks for me, the 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 sheer size of the towers is hard to describe. Um, you know, the, the John Hancock Tower in Boston or the Prudential or Large or the Sears Tower in Chicago, um, you know, are huge buildings. Um, my geography less good at other big American cities. But to stand sort of at the base of the or near the towers was a sort of awe-inspiring thing. You couldn't believe the size of them. Um, and as we all know now, the only reason uh there weren't a hundred thousand dead is because of you know 343 firefighters and police officers who had the courage to sort of go up when others were, were coming down um and whoever those engineers were who built that structure that withstood what it did so 
So anyway, I feel like I'm going on too long. No, right? you're not no, going no, on too long at all, John. So my, my 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 the next thing I wanted to get to, and, and it's I I wanted to one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because you are all the other people we had on um, were kind of a little closer, but this kind of affected you in a different way because you must have known um, that we're going to get to this part of the story that your brother who. Uh, was on a FEMA team. I have to imagine when this was happening, it might have hit into your head that uh, my brother Tom's going to probably be sent down here. Um, and he's kind of the, the, I mean, he is the main character in the documentary, and, and he's just, it's an amazing story. But what made you want to write this documentary? And then maybe could you just tell us a little bit about your brother Tom, and we'll get into the story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a little 30 second on, on what the documentary is about. It's called Looking for My Brother. Um, and it's about my experience trying to um, see him during the seven or eight days that he was working um, what became known as the pile, I guess, uh, at Ground Zero. Um, as, uh, as uh, one of the leaders on the urban search and rescue FEMA team. Um, because the New York team was, I believe, largely wiped out, um, I believe the New Jersey team was also decimated. Uh, oddly, Massachusetts was the first uh, team to, to arrive that day. Uh, I'm 99% sure of that. Um, uh, Tom is, as I mentioned, you know, my, both grandfathers were rescuemen in Boston. My dad was a rescueman, and Tom uh, was desperate to be on the Boston Fire Department. It didn't uh, uh, work out that he was able to do that. It was a tricky time to get on the job. Um, so he ended up becoming a, a firefighter in Hyannis um, on Cape Cod. Um, what made me want to make it? Um, so I'm one of six. Uh, uh, boys only there's 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 no girls uh, large sort of Boston uh, Irish Catholic family and um, there's a big age gap uh, there's a 14 year age gap between oldest and youngest um, uh, and my brother Tom and I were never close um, I would love to tell you this is some Steven Spielberg type story of two incredibly close brothers but I, I don't know that you could have had two guys who were less similar. Um, Tom was good at everything. Uh, he, like my father, could build anything. Uh, tools were fit in his hand. Uh, he, he knew how to use them. He was a craftsman. Uh, and he was just a cool guy. He just, he loved cars, fixed cars. And I, I think if we're very lucky, in life, we know who we are from an early age. Uh, and then there are the clowns like me who spend a lifetime trying to figure out who am I and what am I good at. Uh, Tom that's all right, when you get there, you got it, right? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on that same uh, ship there, John, so that, you don't have to worry, but continue. Tom, Tom knew from a, an early age he, he wanted to be a firefighter. That's what he wanted to do. And uh, uh, it's so that Tom has two older brothers. Uh, Charlie and Michael, uh, great guys, really good athletes. And I remember uh, the story of, I, I wasn't born yet, obviously, but my dad took Charl and Michael and Tom to a Red Sox game at Fenway. And uh, Tom never played sports, wasn't interested. Um, and so, you know, 
my father being the, the sport he is, bought, you know, the furthest bleacher seats you could possibly buy for, you know, as little money as possible. So their backs are to the wall. My, Charles and Michael are watching the game. Tom is looking out the other way, the entire game, and innings go by. And all of a sudden, Tom says, I found it. My father says, found what? He said, our car. I found it where we parked it. He had been looking the entire game, <laughs> trying to find where they had parked the car. Well, well what, what, uh, not interested in baseball. One of the stories that I, I enjoyed is when you, you were telling the story um, in the documentary, and you said uh, you had lived in New York for seven years, and Tom was coming to New York went with his team. This was his first visit to New York City. So he had, he had come to visit you often, I could tell from that uh, comment. But. Yeah, we were very close. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> It was, it, you know, it was one of those relationships uh, that I think is not entirely uncommon in families from my cultural background, uh, Boston, Irish, Catholic, male, um, people who at that time, and perhaps still now, think of vulnerability uh, as a weakness, mm -hmm. emotion as something that can't be masculine um, uh, and, and uh, to, to, to our great detriment. Um, and so I had gone my way. I was interested in, um, in books and in writing. Um, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hammer a nail to save my life. Um, and uh, uh, I went off to college and Tom went off to learn how to be a firefighter and a paramedic. And we rarely saw each other. Um, and when we did, it was always great because he had endless stories to tell. Uh, and uh, I remember sort of trying to describe to him what I did, sit around in a room and come up with bad ideas for TV commercials. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, so that's like a full-time job? <laughs> um, and I said, yeah, yeah, I guess it is. Um, <laughs> they even pay me. So, uh, uh, Tom uh, was by far the funniest human being uh, I've ever met. Uh, he had that just classic, just bone dry, sarcastic sense of humor. So uh, uh, what made me want to make it was, um, you know, I was desperate to do something uh, in the days and months after September 11th. Uh, it <sighs> I think a lot of New Yorkers were, a lot of Americans were um, in New York at that time. Um, you couldn't give blood. The lines were too long. Uh, uh, the blood banks were full for the first time ever. Um, you, in front of every firehouse were, were, were uh, pans of brownies and, and lasagnas and soups. Um, uh, it, it became acutely aware um, of the importance and the sort of high societal hierarchy of, of who mattered. No one was putting pans of brownies in front of Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in front of firehouses and uh, police stations and uh, uh, you know where the city's ambulances were. Um, we came to see crystal clearly how important these people whose starting salary is 45,000, if they become really, really great at their job, maybe they'll make 85 grand a year. 
Uh, and these are the people who save lives and uh, go into burning buildings and do things that most of us are incapable of. And, and, and it, it was really quite astounding. And so uh, I wanted to do something and I wanted to, my brother embodied uh, that sort of remarkable spirit that said, I'll go and do that hard thing and that scary thing. Um, one of my great regrets is that I, I, I never uh, served. I got out of college at a time when it was a very peaceful thing, but my dad was in World War II as a submarine sailor. My uncle went to the Naval Academy and I have a brother who's a police officer. And so this, this, this service was part of my, my family's history. And, and I'll be very frank with you and say after that time, during that time rather, there was, a, there was almost an embarrassment that I, uh, there was nothing I could do. And so I thought the one thing perhaps I can do is tell his story. Uh, and it's not, it, I can't emphasize enough, it's, it's not my story. And running over there was uh, more egotistical than helpful, frankly, because what the hell was I going to do? John, um, if I could, um, I, I watched your documentary. It was very good. And I, I gathered that from your documentary that um, it was kind of that feeling of helplessness, and, but you wanted yeah. to do something. And I think a lot of Americans felt the same way on that day. We wanted to do something, but unlike the firefighters, if we're not in that field, we kind of feel helpless. Yeah, and, but, but you know, what was really quite lovely is people did do something in, in a very, I hope it's okay in the new world to say this, in a very American way, people came together quite beautifully to do what, to do what they could do. Yeah, we've it been talking a, about that this week is how America did come together at that time. Yeah, it, it, and, and it was okay if you weren't a firefighter or a nurse or a police officer or, or a paramedic. Um, can you bake a lasagna? That's gonna help. Can, can you give blood? That's gonna help. Can you stand there and cheer when a shift changes? That, that can help. That's a good point. Did, it is a good what, point. We did what we could. Mm. We did what we could, and, and, and those small things, I, I do think, added up to something pretty powerful. So, John, you know, one of, the, one of the things I noticed from the documentary is you were attempting, I mean, again, it's called Looking for My Brother, but how it worked is your brother got down there with the FEMA team, and for the first eight days, him and his team are, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of going through horror. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. they, they're, they're searching for dead bodies, of which they found, yes. you know, found plenty they're doing all that and you're kind of during this time wh what was going through your head like my brother's down there I'm here I know like you know you, you try to get a hold of him and see him but was it just I mean much proud in some way I would think that you had a brother down there oh doing that. yeah I remember my oldest brother uh calling me um I, I did what every American did for those many days I watched the television I yeah, I, I watched Peter Jennings I watched Dan Rather I I stood there with the phone and talked to friends and stared at the TV and didn't sleep. Um, and, but I was also, because I was physically quite close because my brother was on that pile, I was, I was really quite desperate to see him. And, uh, uh, but the city at that time, it's hard to describe. Uh, 
New York City was closed. You, you couldn't get into New York City. You couldn't fly in. There were no planes in the skies except for the occasional fighter jets that would scream up and down Manhattan looking for, you know, in case another plane was coming towards us. Um, and if, you, if, if you've not heard the sound of a F-16 or an F-14 Tomcat flying low, that it's quite shocking. Um, but other than that, the city was um, weirdly quiet. There were no cars on highways, uh, no one on the subways, really. Um, no one really out walking. And you couldn't get into New York City. It was a completely closed place. So each day I would try to go down and get near ground zero, but it was very hard to even do that. And where the rescue workers were housed was um, in the Javits Center. And, you know, it's hard to, to um, it's hard to find someone in the Javits Center um, because it's, uh, it's 814,000 square feet over about four city blocks. Uh, a lot of entrances, there were uh, New York City police officers, federal marshals, um, helicopters overhead. It was, a, a, you know, they were trying, they, they were worried about an attack on the Javits Center. So I would send in notes, but it, there were throngs of people outside of it. And uh, I would occasionally reach on the phone. But uh, anyway, the, the long and short of it is on the last day, I got a note passed out from me saying, the Massachusetts FEMA, FEMA team has been relieved. They're um, packing up and leaving this day. Um, they had, but someone had heard they were at a bar a few blocks away. And uh, so I ran up to this bar and uh, uh, that's when uh, my brother walked out of the bar. And, uh, you know, he was in his blue uniform and sort of dusty and had this FEMA cap uh, on his head. And uh, he said, are you looking for me? And uh, that's when uh, it had been eight days and uh, I had watched and done nothing. And um, here's this person who was front and center and uh, uh, to see his name Lieutenant Kenny, and uh, he came over and gave me a big hug, which was not something he had ever done before. And it was um, getting a bit of a lump in my throat talking about it. Um, and he said, we have to leave, but come on in, I'll buy you a beer. <laughs> but no one, no firefighter, no one in uniform could buy a beer in New York City during those days. Oh. That's uh, what the, we heard yeah. too, yeah. Hugging them, kissing them, and, and uh, uh, I met his team and uh, we chatted a bit and uh, my, my brother could teach the Stoics about Stoicism. Uh, <laughs> he had a rare ability to um, not overreact in the moment. To, there was a thoughtfulness to him that was really unshakable um i think i would show up at a car accident or a fire and just be jesus christ and he was just sort of like <laughs> figuring out 
what here's what we're going to here's what how, here's how we're going to fix it and that's what made him so special but he was sort of sharing some stories with me um a, a perfectly pristine uh body they had come across uh that sort of blew them away not a mark on the person she looked like she was sleeping um and uh a time when he uh got locked he was way below ground level and he got locked in a room a bathroom uh, but he was trying to pull a door that should have been pushed so um and the the uh the derek and the dominoes song uh layla came on the jukebox and uh right as we were walking out the door and, and i it's i have a hard time listening to that song that there's sort of two parts to that song uh, there's the Eric Clapton part, the guitar, and then it uh, changes to a, a piano, quite touching piano, and, and uh, I have a hard time listening to that song. But um, I wanted to tell his story because he had so many stories to tell. And I, I called him about six weeks after 9-11, and I said, I'm going to come to Cape Cod, and I'm going to film you if that's okay, telling stories. He goes, I don't think you know I'm the right person to do that. I don't really talk about stuff. And I said, let's see what happens. Um, and so I brought a friend of mine who's a director and I said, I'm just going to ask you a few questions about the day. I just, I, I want you to tell me about what happened. He talked for four and a half hours, maybe five, oh. a quiet, brilliant Cape Cod fall day. He might've gone up to used the bathroom once, took a couple of sips of water, but he talked and it was, um, we finished shooting and he, he, he was a different person. He was unburdened. He, he, he was like, that was great. It was, I think for him, uh, a rare therapy session. Uh, firefighters, as you probably know, are, they're made different. Uh, because of what they have to see and feel and experience. And um, I think they compartmentalize it. I think it's a brutal job mentally. And so he was able to talk. And uh, we went out and drank a bunch of beers and ate a steak that night. And I've never seen him that sort of um, free. And um, so that was kind of a little gift for me that he was able to to feel that way um and uh i know he was thrilled about the documentary uh he liked nothing more than getting his picture in the paper and uh, uh so we were lucky we, we the, the film premiered at the, the boston uh, film festival the following fall and uh, we had a big party and, and and invited his team and and so it was it was really uh it was a neat experience and i'm, I'm very glad i did it it was a small budget thing and and uh but but i i uh uh i'm very glad we did it well you know some of the stories from it and i don't want to give it all away because i want everyone to go and watch it but um when when his team got up there and he, and he was telling you the stories from the, the cape house and i i noticed too he seemed a little relaxed i would mm -hmm. think when you when you were to interview him um, or anyone who would come out of September 11th. Like just yesterday, Sean, you know, I talked to him afterwards. He was like, you know, I have a tough time with that story, but I, I kind of also like getting it out every now and then. Um, but 
He told the story of when he was going through the different buildings and, you know, um, first the reporter was telling how they came up, Tom and his crew came upon a donut cart. And the cart, you know, obviously the donut guy ran with seconds that it hit. The donuts were covered in dust. But the one that really got me is he was in a retail store. I, I think he forgot to tell us where it was. but And it looked like he had come upon someone who was in the middle of a transaction. Like the, the, the register drawer was open. The receipt was like being put into a bag. And they took off running at just obviously what the, the horror, again, from that is. And, and to hear him tell... You know, all the stories of the guys. And, and another thing is that on our four-part series, we, we had on a New York cop. We had on a, my cousin who was a lawyer working in town. We had on a guy in the building. But all of you have, have overlapped one another. Um, mm -hmm. In your documentary, John, you discussed how when you first went over, you know, because you weren't like a trained firefighter, they didn't have much for you to do, but you ended up building stretches from wood. My cousin was actually another one of the volunteers who did that. Now, whether mm -hmm. you two were in the same group doing that. I'm sure there was tons. Who knows? But I find that to be interesting. And then also in your documentary, um, your brother Tom is telling how when they arrived on the bus uh, and, they, you know, they're driving into Ground Zero for the very first time that all the guys jumped up to one side of the bus to look. And there was one of the engines from the plane and there were two cops guarding it. And it looked as if like it was placed under the scaffolding on purpose. And in uh, Tuesday, we had on Officer Kane, uh, who was a sergeant at the time, and he told us how, you know, when he finally, you know, after the building fell and he came to, he was in a Catholic church, he's, you know, he's got a mask over his face. He, he kind of snapped back into police mode and he told two, like, younger cops, God, that engine, it's evidence, don't leave. And then your brother sees it. So it's, it's a weird, I don't know how to explain it, way that it, it all, even though it was a huge, horrible day, there's a, a, a lot of stories kind of intersected with one another. One question I wanted to ask you um, that all the other guys mentioned is, do you remember where you were when the actual building fell, and was it as loud to you as the rest of them were describing, or had they already fallen when you started going over? No, I, uh, um, uh, I was in my apartment, okay. and uh, and uh, after the first one fell, I ran uh, to the a few blocks away to the Brooklyn Heights Promenade uh, because you know you can almost reach out and touch it from the Brooklyn Heights Promenade. Um, uh, there's the East River and then Lower Manhattan and the buildings were right there and the plume of dust and as 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 so many people have have talked about. Um, in fact, I'm sitting in Brooklyn right now uh, and it's an oddly uh, similar beautiful day crystal blue skies low humidity. Yeah, I was going to um, bring that up too, John. We had all three of our guys that think that it was an oddly beautiful great like, day. Yeah, yeah everyone said September 11 was gorgeous. All day. Yeah. Um, and uh, the wind was blowing at Brooklyn Heights. And so uh, I still have a paper with burned edges was mm. falling from the sky from the offices. That was yeah, we, we heard that, yeah. You, did you, you kept some of that? You kept a piece of I that? I did, I did. Yeah, you uh, have to. That's, you know, that's, that's history. Yeah. So um, you, you were in your apartment when all the towers came down at that point? And then yeah. started going toward the and, and the funny story I can kind of relate with you there because uh, Mark asked me this morning where were you when 9/11 happened or the first plane hit and um, I also had stayed up too late that night and I was late for work and my boss reminded me that I'm never late for work and this is the only time I'm late for work and look what happens. Now, I, I no. won't I won't tell any of you what I was doing on September 11th. Okay, so that was a long time ago, uh, but it was a wild night. You know, it's funny because um, ultimately Tom's experience was not a 
search and rescue. It was a discovery. And uh, I was reading something recently. and it, it, I think what all those firefighters did was um, was was pretty r remarkable. There, there's a one, one of my favorite books is To Kill a Mockingbird, and um, there's a wonderful quote uh, that Atticus Finch says to Scout, his his daughter, and he says because he, he he had her come to the courtroom where his client knows for a fact he's going to be found guilty, but he stands there with great dignity. And he says to her, I wanted you to see what real courage is, instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand. It's when you know you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway and see it through no matter what. And I think the men and women who climbed those stairs they didn't know the tower was going to come down, but they were licked and they did it anyway. And the men and women who worked those piles, that carnage for days and days, that's true courage. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make the documentary to tell my, my one brother's story. There were so many examples of it and but that was the thing I had seen and was closest to. Um, um, he I continued think, on. Sorry, sorry Don. Go. What struck me too in your um, documentary, it's maybe different from Mark, but when you said um, that your brother was always the one to run toward the fire or the problem where everyone oh, else would run away. Yeah, 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 God. I mean, I, I would absolutely flee um, opposite direction. Um, <laughs> but he... Uh, he it, it, there is a uh, there's a somewhat uh, uh, sad ending uh, to it. He continued on the Hyannis Fire Department and retired uh, two years ago as a uh, as a captain, and uh, which was a very proud moment for him. And and uh, we had a huge party for him on Cape Cod. Huge! It was just it was a blast. Um, it was in November, and uh, we were all there, and lots of great speeches and. Must have been about 150 people or so, and then, uh, uh, and this is, I, you know, I think this is 9/11 related. He, he was redoing uh, his downstairs bathroom and and thought he'd pulled a muscle. This was in January, and he was retired, and life looked really good. And uh, uh, he went to the doctor, and they did a scan, and and it turns out it was uh, uh, stage four pancreatic cancer, and uh, he was he was gone five months later. Oh wow! I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's quite something. But uh, I, I remember the last time I saw him, uh, I had driven up real early from New York City to Hyannis. Uh, all of the brothers were. We had done this three or four times during the the spring uh, before he uh, he passed away. So we would get together and make fun of him, um, and. Uh, uh, he had lost a lot of weight and he was sitting on a big chair. And, um, it was very early June and uh, Cape Cod can be quite cruel in May and June, still cold and rainy. And uh, I got there first and my other four brothers were driving down from Boston and we chatted a bit. And I looked out the window and saw the car pull in and I said to him, uh, <clears throat> this is the last time I saw him. I said, the others are here. And like Buster Keaton, he just he dropped his head like this. 
dropped an arm down to one side and closed his eyes and with a little smirk on his face said, tell them they're too late. That's an incredible story. Mm -hmm. And how long ago did he pass away, John? And sorry to hear that. It, yeah, it was two years ago, June. Two years ago, and, June. Uh, uh, but he had a, a heck of a sending off, I'll tell you. We had we had uh, something like 500 firefighters from around the country showed up. And it was uh, a, a very beautiful tribute. He was gone too soon. But, but you know, I the last time I saw him, I said, how are you? He goes, you know, I'm not afraid to die. He said, I did exactly what I wanted to do in my life. I loved my work. He's got two, he started real young. He's got two grown daughters. He goes, I don't want to leave yet, but he, he, he said, I loved life. I loved it. I loved every minute. I loved my wife. I loved my daughters. I loved the fire department. And, um, how many of us can say that? No, I was going to say very mm. few people get that. And you, you mentioned a little earlier that you think that maybe this cancer was related to 9-11. This is a guy who was healthy as a horse his whole life. Uh, and uh, so it is, it's being treated as, you know, they, they were supposed to have respirators on. But these were, the days after were um, sunny, 75, 80 there's heat from the piles. There's tremendous smoke. These guys are, are breathing in this toxic plastic metal jet fuel Concoction. thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we've seen, I don't think we've seen the, the end by a long shot of the 9-11 first responder illnesses. Yeah, I, I bring that up because on Tuesday, Sergeant um, Kane lost a friend. told us that he had lost, I think, more people uh, constantly from um, cancers and different things related to what he believes 9-11. That was yeah. insightful to me. Yeah. I think he said, yeah. said something along 10 to 15 funerals per year. Yeah, yeah quite a bit. That, that's was, related that, to the that we don't really hear about. Thank you, Noah. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's, uh, that's a... a Incredible number. So, John, let me ask you this. Uh, uh, every year on September 11th is, I mean, obviously it means something to you. Do you do anything special for it or do you kind of just do your own thing? Or? Um, for a long time, I lived uh, in an apartment. Uh, we had a little roof deck and uh, in the evenings during those few days that preceded it and the day itself, they shoot the lights up. And uh, I have two little, little kids, a 12 year old and a 10 year old and uh we go up and we look at the lights uh and we say a little prayer and we talk about uncle tom and uh and that's what we do john how long have you been living in new york um too long i moved from boston where all my friends and family were uh on september 15th 1995 for what i thought was going to be two years uh, and I've been here and it sort of sinks its teeth into you and, and it's, uh, there's an energy to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's home now, although I still feel like a Bostonian even after 26 years. Well, the reason why I ask is I just heard you say you lived in an apartment. It's actually called an apartment, John, <laughs> and I would appreciate it if you got your accent back. You've been living down there a little too long. It is an apartment. I've, I've got some terrible news. My son, who's obsessed with baseball. Uh-oh. Yankees? 
he's a Yankees fan. And and you haven't. So first of all, I hope your brothers are listening and they are, are going to give you a lot of trouble for this because from a young age, you're supposed to teach your youth that the Yankees are the epitome of evil. The devil. And, yes, exactly. <laughs> the devil. And, and I, I said this to him when he was about six or seven. And um, my son is a future lawyer, I think. Uh, he's like, Dad, I was born in a hospital in Manhattan. I'm a New York Yankees fan. <laughs> all I know I is like, when I was a kid, John, like I didn't know why, but I hated them with like a, literally a fiery passion. And I couldn't tell you. To this day, I still do, and I don't know why. I think it's in, ingrated in you uh, when you're a young kid in Boston. It, it's like, you know, you make your confirmation, your first Holy Communion, you, you learn to hate the Yankees. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, that's, how we, that's how we do it. Now, all right, one other question, and I appreciate you coming on, and I don't want to hold you all day. I know you have young kids. Um, we've been asking all the guys kind of at the end to lighten the mood a little bit what their favorite New York pizza place is. So where does John Kenny go to get pizza in New York? Does he have a special place? Absolutely, and have for many years. I went there not two hours ago. Um, it's called Fascati's, F-A-S-C-A-T-I-S. Okay. Uh, it's owned Scott. by uh, John Fascati. His dad and uncle started it, and um, uh, and they are just—they're the greatest people. Uh, they take August off. They opened up today again after their August vacation, and I went up there for a slice, and I'm going to go up there after this call to get my son a slice and bring it to him at baseball camp. It's super thin. They make their own sauce. They make their own everything. Brooklyn Heights on Henry Street, Fascati's. All right, well, the next time I'm in New York, that is where I'm going. Well, John, listen, I, 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 I was going to say, if you are ever down the Cape, um, you know, I, I'd love to have you. But before we wrap things up, I do have to ask you, how did you ever get involved with hanging around with my sister? Because that, that gives a strike against you. Now we got, you're, you're pronouncing your R's, you've got a son who's a Yankees fan, and you're friends with one of my sisters. So I question your... Uh, is one of the greatest, funniest, outrageously smart people I've ever met. I, <laughs> I love Anne. Uh, I met Anne through a good friend of mine, Susie Cochran. Ah, I know and, Susie. Uh, She's a, I have, it's funny because I'm going to see Anne in a couple of weeks. So I haven't seen her in a couple of years. I'm terribly sorry to hear that. But uh, I I will say this. If you are going to see her, I promise you'll have fun. And I'm just kidding. Anne is, is, is an incredibly good sibling and takes great care of her younger brother. So, (laughs) um, well, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. It is a, uh, it is a quite a, quite a time, um, these days, but uh, 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 I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because I think in doing this, we keep these memories alive. So, no, yes, everyone you, we've talked to has told, I, I, the, when I talked to Sergeant Kane offline, he said that he at one point talked to a Pearl Harbor survivor who just said, you know, keeping the memories alive, mm-hmm. you know, once a year, whatever is important, and, and doing that is, is doing your job. So, John. Uh, your documentary was amazing. Yes. Your brother's life is even more amazing. And I thank you so much for coming on this little show to tell us your 9-11 experience. Uh, I hope you have a fantastic time. I hope your uh, uh, upcoming, I see, I, I forget the seasons now. I was going to say, I hope your summer's going well, because I live in Florida. We, we're still in summer here. But I hope you have a good fall and winter. And we definitely have to get together on Cape Cod sometime and, uh, and have a time. I'd love that. Uh, listen, thank you, uh, both of you, so much. And uh, Uh, Take care. Thank you, John. Take care. Thank you. Great having you. Bye-bye.
Julie? All of our podcasts can be viewed on our website at www.asdf.us and also live streaming on Facebook, Protecting Our Freedoms. And we're also on YouTube, Instagram, all of the social media sites you can find us, and all your podcasting, hosting, Apple, and Spotify. This has been the end of our four-part series. Again, we started on Tuesday with retired NYPD Sergeant Jerry Kane. Wednesday was New York Attorney John Renahan, an author. And Thursday was Sean Pierce, who was in one of the towers working for Morgan Stanley. Today, of course, we had John Kenny. John is also an author, by the way, and he also did the documentary Looking for My Brother. So thank you all for joining us. Joy, you want to take us yes, out? Yes, so all of our guests that we've had here um, reminded us how we were, they were all affected and all the lives that were affected by 9-11. So we just want to remember that, as John just alluded to before he left, that to keep this memory alive. So thank you for tuning in this week. And join us next time as we talk more about protecting your freedoms. Have a good one, everybody. Bye-bye.